Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. This is Lieutenant West, and this is the Albuquerque Fire Rescue Podcast. And today we will be talking about fire and rescue with Dr. Pruitt. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Good, Good to see you again. Okay, so... First thing we want to talk about, where there's fire, there's going to be smoke, and in that smoke, there's going to be some dangerous gases. The two we're going to focus on today are carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide. So quick little SOG quiz. Uh, What is the IDLH of carbon monoxide? When is it safe to remove your SCBA? And who is that order going to come from? So go ahead and think about that for a second. Uh, What I want to get to is... Uh, remember to keep your safe yourself safe first. Okay, so we're going into these dangerous environments. There's these dangerous gases. So make sure you have your SCBA on. I think we do a great job of wearing the SCBA until command tells us it's safe to remove. However, I've seen a couple times where people are operating uh, outside of the structure, maybe in a window, operating a hose stream from the window or ventilating, and they're just breathing in that smoke so again protect yourself both short term and long term as cyanide is a carcinogen so uh, stay safe out there now once we do go inside um, we're going to be searching for victims that might have been exposed to those gases as well so there's a chance they could be incapacitated that's why it's important for us to get that primary search done uh, as quick as we can to try to find those victims and pull them out Now, once we get them out to uh, a safe environment with good air to breathe, we're gonna go ahead and initiate medical treatment. And I've got Dr. Pruitt here to tell us what's going on with those patients. So after we get them out of the fire and now it's safe to work on them, uh, what's happening in their body, uh, starting with uh, the hydrogen cyanide, what does that do to the body physiologically? Okay, so as we've pulled the patient out of the fire, um, what I'd like to see is like good quick assessment, look for burns, look for body surface area, get a good set of vitals. A lot of times your patient's mental status and your vital signs are gonna tell you what's going on with them. Um, obviously, anytime there's an enclosed structure fire and possible smoke inhalation, the two big poisonous gases like you mentioned that we're gonna really need to think about are cyanide and carbon monoxide. So with those two things in the back of your mind going into this, any patient that's pulled out of that structure fire, you need to be thinking, am I gonna give cyano kit? And usually the right answer is gonna be yes. Okay. Um, the reason that cyanide is such a deadly poison is that um, it basically suffocates cells. And it suffocates the cells first that are the hardest working and the most active. So the places where we're gonna see cyanide's effect are gonna be on the patient's mental status and on the patient's cardiovascular status because those are the cells, our brains and our hearts and our lungs are doing the hardest work in the body. And so that's where we're gonna see its effects first. What it does, Um, we all know that our cells need oxygen in order to survive and the tissues are going to rely on that to do a good job and do what they're supposed to. So with with the cells needing the oxygen and um, sugar, the two of those things go into the cells, do a lot of biochemistry, and the end product 
after a lot of biochemical processes in the cell is going to be ATP. And ATP is basically the fuel that the cells use to do whatever their job is. If it's a kidney cell, the kidney is going to use that ATP to do the kidney job. If it's a brain cell, the brain is going to use ATP to do the brain job. And where cyanide comes in is it's, it basically halts the cell's ability to use oxygen and make ATP. And that's how it shuts down the cells. Okay, so the two things that uh, come to mind for me when I think of ATP, again, this is not from a doctor's point of view, but I remember when I was younger and I would uh, mess around with supplements. I tried creatine one time and their claim was it's going to increase your ATP. And it, it seemed uh, to work for me at least. I felt like I was way stronger. Um, and then a lack of ATP, I can just go back to the academy of running towers and I can remember the burning in your legs going on. So um, for me, visually or mentally, I guess, to try to picture it is, you know, you've got the extra ATP um, taking a supplement like creatine and your lack of ATP when you're just going to a anaerobic state, running towers and and how much that burns your muscles. Exactly. So you kind of have two things going on there. Our cells do need ATP to keep going, right? And when you're thinking about muscle strength and muscle endurance and building muscle, what ATP is, it's adenosine triphosphate. And ATP, it's triphosphate. So there's three phosphate ions that are bound together, and there's tons of energy bound up in that triphosphate bond. And so when you're taking creatine phosphate, what you're doing is you're giving your cells more phosphate substrate to make more ATP. Does that make sense? Mm, okay. And then you're giving your cells the ability to have more of those bonds to break to release more energy for the cells to do their job. So that's how creatine phosphate works. Okay. Um, when you're talking about the burning in your legs and your lungs when you're running the tower, what's happening there, and I think it's a really neat process, our body has a backup process for when our cells aren't able to either get enough oxygen or enough glucose or make enough ATP. Instead of just dying right there when they don't get what they need, there's, there's a kind of a less efficient but good enough process to where our cells can stay alive without those three things that they need for a little while. The consequence though is that it makes a byproduct of lactate. So when the cells aren't getting enough oxygen, um, it goes down that other pathway and lactate is released as a byproduct. And that's why when you're running and your legs are tired, they start to burn or your lungs start to burn when you're breathing hard is because lactate's an acid. Okay. And we're feeling the effects of that anaerobic metabolism. And then, uh, Thinking about a patient in a fire and uh, being in an uh, anaerobic state, um, can you explain the process of like why why does that lower your blood pressure and other things like that that are that are going to be a result of that process? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you have a patient that was just barely exposed to a little bit of smoke and they're early on in their cyanide exposure, what's going to happen is it's just like what happens when you initially start to run say a mile, your your heart rate's going to speed up, you're going to start breathing faster, um, you're going to be a little more alert and maybe even a little bit agitated because those cells initially are going to say, hey, I need more oxygen, I need more oxygen. And the way that that works in our body is to make us a little more agitated, make us a little anxious, make the heart beat faster, make the blood pressure even a little faster, and make the breathing rate faster. And so 
um, those are the early vital signs that you're going to see in someone who's been exposed to cyanide. Okay, so early on, everything's uh, going up. Elevated heart rate, trying to breathe faster, like you said, get, get more oxygen yeah. uh, to those cells that are starving. Yeah. And then what about more of the uh, delayed onset? Uh, symptoms. So as cells start to run out of energy and they're not getting the help that they've been screaming for, everything starts to slow down and then eventually die. So the patient, as they've been exposed to more cyanide, will become more and more comatose or more and more unresponsive. The heart rate is going to probably become bradycardic and then they'll get hypotensive and the breathing will become more shallow. Okay. Uh, the good news is we've got something that can fix all this. Yes. Uh, can you talk about uh, what it is and how it works. Yeah, so we are very fortunate in our system to have the cyano kit, which is a amazing little bit of chemistry that's actually fairly simple and um, a really great tool for patients that are experiencing cyanide toxicity. Uh, basically what it does is it's able to go in and bind the cyanide. Cyanide is actually a very negatively charged ion and by introducing hydroxocobalamin into the system. Cobalt is, uh, or the cobalamin molecule actually is very positively charged. And so the positive charge on the hydrogen cobalamin binds the cyanide and is able to form a molecule actually that our body is very familiar with, um, B12. Cyanocobalamin is the okay. other name of it. It binds the cyanide with the cobalamin, the positive and the negative. And then that makes B12, and that's easily excreted through our kidneys. Okay, so you just pee it out. You basically just pee it out. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, when you do pee it out, it's going to change your pee to be red. <laughs> so don't be surprised. It basically changes all of the patient's body fluids to with a red discoloration. Okay, because so that's a cyanokit's red, right? Yeah. When, it, when you infuse it yeah it, it has to do with the with the ion and that's just the way the element is but um it might make their tears or their saliva basically any body fluids will have a red tinge to them and the patient might actually get a little flushed and reddish discoloration as well okay so i'll try to rephrase it in the way that i understand you got a patient inside a house they're breathing in uh hydrogen cyanide and carbon monoxide you bring them out um that cyanide has gone uh, to their cells, specifically the mitochondria, and it's binding to the mitochondria, so now oxygen can't get there and uh, produce that ATP. So to fix this, we're getting the cyanokit, and that's going to bind to the cyanide on the mitochondria, and you urinate it out, and now oxygen is able to get to the cell. Is that a good summary? You nailed it. It's exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. Okay, so now we could still be in a situation where there's not enough oxygen on the uh, hemoglobin because we've got carbon monoxide exposure. So can you talk briefly about carbon monoxide exposure, what's going on in the cells uh, with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so carbon monoxide has a very high affinity for our hemoglobin molecules in our blood and hemoglobin is what carries oxygen to the tissues and carbon monoxide actually boots the oxygen molecules off and takes up space on the hemoglobin and then our tissues as a secondary way um, in addition to the cyanide now are not getting enough oxygen delivery um do you have a good number for uh say somebody's in paramedic school and they want to know the affinity for uh i know when i was going through it was like <laughs> 217 to one um 
I don't know if there's been any change to that, but a little uh, little tidbit. If you see that on a test, I've, I'm going to say remember 217. You're probably <laughs> right. I don't know the right you don't number know there. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's when I I went through a while ago, but um, that was a number that they taught us in my paramedic school. So, it's, it's uh, yeah, 217 times more uh, likely to bind to hemoglobin than oxygen. That's great. So, but the treatment, so, so here we have like not only in addition to the cyanide acting at the cellular level to, to block the oxygen delivery to tissues, but now carbon monoxide is blocking the red blood cells ability to deliver oxygen. So we've got two things going on, but luckily again, we have a fairly easy treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning and that's just high flow oxygen. We can overwhelm the body with enough oxygen and pull the patient away from the carbon monoxide source that eventually oxygen can bind to hemoglobin again and get delivered to the tissues. <coughs> okay, and um, some other possibilities. We, we were talking about enclosed structure fires, but there's also times where somebody's camping and they're burning something to stay warm inside of their tent, or there, you know, there's other situations where you are gonna be exposed to carbon monoxide and it might not be a, a fire situation. Mm -hmm. um, how are those specifically carbon monoxide patients only gonna present, maybe a headache? Um, same kind of thing. So, so say you have someone who tried to commit suicide in their garage and turn the car engine on and you know they've been exposed to carbon monoxide. Just like any scene, when you go in that garage, most important thing is going to be able to recognize that situation and take care of the providers first, right? We don't want them rushing into a toxic environment. So make sure you have whatever PPE. Okay, yeah. And we all have our, uh, our air monitors on every apparatus. So that can give us our carbon monoxide reading. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a good point. Make sure you're not going into a dangerous atmosphere. Yeah. But once you, once you make sure yourself that you're safe and then you go to treat that patient, it's going to be the same spectrum we just talked about. So any kind of, really this counts for any hypoxic patient. If you even think about your ones that are in respiratory distress and aren't getting enough oxygen, the way that progression goes is they get agitated, they get anxious, they get short of breath, their heart rate is fast, right, initially. And then as they get sicker and sicker and they run out of reserve and that adrenaline kind of wears out, they're going to get less responsive, less conscious, all the way to coma. And then their heart rate's going to drop and their blood pressure is going to drop right before they code. So it's really the same progression. Any patient who's having any issue with oxygen delivery, it's going to be the same kind of same kind of cascade okay so the treatment for carbon monoxide after we treat the uh, cyanide poisoning we're going to do 100 uh, percent o2 and one of the things doing some research prior to was the half-life of carbon monoxide um, just breathing in room air you're going to be able to get rid of it in about four hours and if you're on 100 percent o2 it's going to drop it down to an hour mm -hmm. um now, also an interesting thing is a non-rebreather, we were, I was taught uh, in paramedic school that a non-rebreather is gonna get you up to that 100% O2, um, but is there a better way? Is there anything we can do in addition to a non-rebreather? Um, some tips I've heard was you can get a nasal cannula going as well as a non-rebreather to actually get that closer to the 100%. Get more oxygen, I think that's a great idea. You could do a high flow nasal cannula in addition to non-rebreather. It's just gonna add more oxygen molecules into the, into the bloodstream. Okay, and is, would there be any advantage to uh, hyperbaric oxygen? 
So that's likely a decision that will be made at the hospital. There's a certain threshold that we look for when we send these blood tests to confirm either cyanide toxicity or carbon monoxide toxicity. We'll check a level. And then depending on the level, we actually only have one of those chambers in the state, and it's in Santa Fe. So based on the, the entire patient picture, whether they need burn care or trauma care or anything else, they more than likely will stay at the university hospital, at least here in the city, and just continue the high flow O2 unless, unless their main problem is the carbon monoxide, in which point we would consider um, a transfer. Okay. Uh, one of the things we can do out in the field, um, when we first got the LifePak 15s, we had the white cords that attached to them. We still have them. Um, and I'm thinking it'd be a good idea if we can get those white cords with that cyano kit because those cords are actually able to pick up the carbon monoxide levels. So I think once it gets over um, 10, it'll change it from instead of reading your O2 sat, it's going to change it over to your carbon monoxide levels. And uh, that is a capability. I just wanted to remind people that you, you've got to have that white cord to be able to get that reading. but. Um, if you do, and if say we put those white cords on the, on the squad, then now a patient like that, that is pulled from a fire now would we'll be able to get a reading on them. I think that's a fantastic idea. Okay. Um, let's see. All right. So treatment for cyanide poisoning, cyano kit, five grams and carbon monoxide treatment is going to be hundred percent O2. Exactly. One important thing to note about the cyano kit, if, if you guys are out there in the field and want to see it, I'd, I'd ask your 7-8 as you see them just to pull it out of their truck and take a look at it and get familiar with it because it's not necessarily intuitive. I wouldn't say it's that hard, but I can see how it could be a challenge in a stressful circumstance. Um, it is a glass bottle full of powder and it does need to be reconstituted with fluid. Um, 200 mLs of most likely normal saline. Um, very gently, don't shake it, but just rock it back and forth until you get the um, get it reconstituted, and then you can administer to the patient. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I remember the academy made a video um, a few years ago, so we might be able to uh, find that still. But I do remember that point of not shaking, but just a gentle rocking to reconstitute. Yeah. All it's right. worth it, it's worth at least getting your hands on it and seeing it and um, getting familiar with it before you actually have to use it. The other nice thing about our cyano kits is that um, there's a pediatric cheat sheet. So if we do have to have a pediatric administration, there's there's dosages and quick references right on the right on the container to make things a little bit easier. Okay, nice. Um, I wanted to talk about a few um, examples of you know, potential patients we could encounter. So we'll uh, run the gamut between, you know, different severity and different ages and things like that. The first one we're going to talk about is going to be a 35 year old female. She was pulled out of a fire. She's altered mental status, only responsive to verbal stimulus, tachycardic and tachypnic. Um, would this be somebody that we're going to want to use as cyano kit? Absolutely. I think this is like your textbook patient that would need it. She's she's pulled from a structure fire. She's a little bit altered. And this is apparently still pretty early in her course because she's tachycardic. She's tachypnic, although her mental status is somewhat starting to decline. So this is a patient earlier than later. I would um, work really hard to get that cyano kit going. And the thing about the cyano kit, say, say she's uh, it's the middle of the night or it's raining or whatever, and it's hard to get a line on her. 
don't be afraid to go ahead and do an IO. Okay. Um, the cyano kit can be administered intraosseously. And as we know, like it only takes like six to eight minutes to die from cyanide toxicity. So the earlier, the better that you can get that antidote in. Okay. I know a lot of people, uh, I mean, I've had to give an IO uh, to a, you know, person that's responsive to pain or responsive to verbal. And, you know, it, it feels pretty cruel to do that, can you speak about, have you, have you guys ever do that in the ER to, you know, giving it to somebody unconscious, you don't feel bad about it, but maybe the people that are hesitant to give an IO, um, do you have any examples in the ER? That I, you had to do I actually just had to do this two days ago on my shift. I had a, a man who was in pretty bad cardiogenic shock. He was still awake and talking, but he, we needed emergently to get some medicine in him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was just a terribly difficult stick. And uh, we had to make the hard call to just go ahead and place the IO while he was still awake. And we did. And in the, in the end, I can't say how badly it hurts because I've never had one myself. But if you imagine like getting stuck with needles like 10 or 15 times digging for an IV versus just one painful stick, yeah. I'd almost go for the one painful stick knowing and that it's going to save my life right how did this man respond he actually surprisingly i was i was curious how he was going to handle it and it it went just fine he tolerated it well okay yeah the one time i did we, we drilled into this lady's tibia and the actual drilling she didn't scream or anything mm -hmm. um and then we you know because she was still uh kind of conscious we flushed it with lidocaine and then uh started administering fluid so it was, once we started giving the uh, lidocaine first then she screamed a little bit and once our initial flush was over with and we just had the fluid dripping in, she kind of uh, d wasn't in that much pain. That's anymore. how that's how my patient was a couple of days ago. The, the lidocaine initially hurts, but they get over that. And then once that flow is established, it's fine after that. Okay. So again, good tip. Don't be afraid. You know, if it, somebody's in such a bad condition that they're going to need um, that emergent medicine, you know, and you got to get it, yeah, 15 tries at an IV is probably not the best approach. So don't be scared of, of going to the IO, even on somebody um, conscious. Yeah, especially recognizing that time is such a factor here. Okay, so the per first patient, kind of the early stages of cyanide poisoning. Again, uh, early on, it's going to be tachycardia, tachypnic, everything's going to be elevated. Um, now on the extreme other end would be an example of say a 65 year old male uh, was pulled out during the primary search and once he came outside he was found to be pulseless and apneic um, no visible burns so that's not the cause of it and how do you want us to treat these patients if we, if we are going to pull them out of a fire and they're in cardiac arrest what should we do yeah, I think it's going to be really hard to tell because they're not going to clearly have rigor and they're still going to be warm, right? So we, I think a lot of it will come down to the presumed downtime. Um, and if we just really don't know, I think these patients still um, deserve a chance and everything that we have. So I would say this is still the perfect candidate for cyanokit. And I would work them as a medical arrest. So do your CPR, do your epinephrine at least initiate the normal resuscitation that we would do with the addition of the cyano kit realizing that probably if this patient is already pulseless and apneic they've burned through every bit of reserves that they have and they probably have a very profound acidosis that likely won't be reversible 
Okay. Um, so I would call, I'd ca- I'd go ahead and start, do all the normal things, and then just maybe call consortium and see if they have any other ideas. Okay. So if we're going to initiate the resuscitation, then you're going to recommend, then go ahead with that cyano kit, um, unless it's presume they've been down so long that there's no chance of uh, survival yeah say that you knew they were locked in a back room that you just couldn't get to and you know that it's been longer than 10 minutes that they've been in there probably not but if you really don't know then go ahead and try with the understanding that it only takes six to eight minutes to die from the cyanide okay and like you said earlier there no harm from there's no there's really no side effects other than that red discoloration and hypertension okay so all right the next uh Example we're going to move to is going to be a 13-year-old female. She's pulled out of a fire. She's tachycardic. She's wheezing. She's got soot around her mouth, but she's got a history of asthma. So are we going to treat this as an asthma patient that um, the smoke triggered uh, um, asthma response, or are we going to treat this as uh, cyanide poisoning? Um, I think we can treat both but my biggest most life-threatening concern would be the fact that she was pulled from a structure fire with evidence of some smoke inhalation so i would i would administer the cyano kit here um it sounds like she's still awake and talking yeah this this one is still um conscious talking to you she's just wheezing and struggling a little bit she's got some soot around her mouth yeah yeah i would go ahead and initiate the cyano kit you can also still treat she might very well have a reactive component to this with her asthma you can still do albuterol and the normal treatments that you would do for asthma but i would get the cyano kit on board first okay and this is a interesting case you bring up because she's pediatric Um, oh yeah yeah what's uh what's going to be the dosage on that the dosing for any pediatric patient will be 70 milligrams per kilogram and the cheat sheet for the pediatric dosing is going to be on the actual container for the cyano kit that the 7-8 carries okay um the adult dose compared to the adult dose um would be five grams in a one-time dose and that's how much is actually in the vial okay all right and then we're going to throw one more example out there. Um, this one, it's going to be somebody that clearly needs the cyano kit, um, but 7-8 or a squad is not available at the time. Uh, should we stay on scene and wait for 7-8 to show up, or should we just load and go? Um, I would say it depends. Um, it depends how close you are. Whoever is fastest to get you that cyano kit, because remember we're working with a presumed time frame of six to eight minutes until um, this gets worse. So if you can uh, rendezvous with the 7-8, then go ahead and do that. But if you're closer to the hospital, then just go ahead and get them to the hospital, and then the hospital can administer the treatment. It kind of depends on where you are, how far you are from the hospital, and what the circumstances surrounding are. In the meantime, though, you can absolutely still do high flow O2 and um, try to temporize things from there in terms of carbon monoxide. All right. Well, everybody, this was our uh, first video as well as podcast, so it's kind of both. If you want to listen to it on any of the apps or you can watch it on youtube so we've got our first video one done uh, thank you dr pruitt it's been thank fun you, and a little bit different being on camera but um i'm sure i won't hate it as much as i hate listening to my own voice so <laughs> once again let's summarize real quick so today we talked about the hazards of smoke carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide in that smoke we talked about how we're going to treat both of those, um, the effects it's going to have on the body. So cyanide is going to bind to the mitochondria and prevent 
aerobic metabolism, treat that with cyanokit, and then carbon monoxide is going to bind to hemoglobin and prevent oxygen from getting on that and passing around to the cells. So treat that with 100% O2. And any other? Uh, I think the biggest takeaway is just don't be afraid to give it. If you have the right patient in the right situation pulled from a structure fire with possible inhalation injuries and any abnormal vital signs or change in mental status, go ahead and give the cyanokit. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening or watching, and we'll talk to you on the next episode.